All right, this morning we will be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, which is all of chapter 2. So we're going to try and fly through 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to be talking about how the Spirit of God makes all the difference. And we'll have a few, a few different places throughout our time this morning where we'll pull off and have some table discussions. So be ready for those, uh, thinking through those. But allow me to open up our time in prayer first, and uh, we'll pray together. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it is to be able to spend this time in your word. And we thank you that um, this is a means by which you produce sanctification in our lives. We know that as our Lord prayed, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And that's, that's a means of our sanctification. We're so thankful for that as we engage with your word privately and individually and also as we do so together. We just thank you for the opportunity on Sunday to hear your word preached, have discussional contexts and time that we can just further dive into your word. And I ask that you would richly bless this time in our lives individually as we dig into your word, but also in our lives collectively as a young adult ministry as um, your word does, it work, does its work in each of our hearts. We just ask that that would be um, continuing to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. Help me to speak clearly and um, rightly as we dig into your scriptures and be with every heart here to consider rightly how these things apply to them. So again, bless this time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. But uh, question to put you all on the spot. Last week, two weeks ago, there was some quote-unquote homework to read chapter 2 and think through a couple questions related to it. Um, the two questions were, how does Paul use the word spirit, and how many different ways is the term used? Did anyone, and this might be a really awkward pause, did anyone get the, the opportunity to think through that question and read through that chapter and think through the different ways that Paul uses the term spirit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, three different ways, at least. Spirit of an individual, spirit of the world, and then Holy Spirit person. Absolutely, those are the same ones I saw. Thank you, Joe. Anyone else have some observations connected to that question? The other question was from 1 Corinthians 2.5, which reads, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I'm talking about Paul's method of evangelism. What sort of methods of evangelism and ministry would cause someone to trust in men rather than God? Do you want to have a chance to think through that question, or even now as you're thinking through that question? What sorts of methods of evangelism and ministry would cause someone to trust in men rather than God? Yeah, Micah? Debating. Debating, yeah. Flesh that out. Why, why would debating cause someone to trust in man rather than God? Amen. Well said. Yeah, good thought there. Anyone else? Thoughts on that question? Yes.
right? Yeah, I've heard a similar rendition of that same quote. What you win them with is what you win them to. What you draw them with is what you have to keep them with. And that if Christianity is won by great rhetorical skill and that's how someone comes to believe the gospel, then it's going to be perpetual great rhetorical skill that keeps someone in the midst of trials and hardships, and that's just not a substantial holding point. But the power of God is, and that's what Paul talks about in this passage. I wanted to start with one little quote before we read the beginning of this passage from John Flavel. Never doth reason show itself more reasonable than when it ceaseth ceaseth to reason about things that are above reason. Kind of a puzzling little thought, but it's helpful to think about as we dive into this passage on human wisdom versus God's wisdom, spiritual power versus natural power, and to see the the sharp contrast talked about. So in verses 1 through 5, we'll start by reading that, and we'll see the gospel's dissonance with worldly wisdom. The gospel's dissonance with worldly wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul speaking, And when I, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Verse 1, Paul's aim was not high speech or sophistry. He wasn't trying to build the most sophisticated philosophical argument or bring the most rhetorically subtle and wonderful presentation and message. He was not coming proclaiming the testimony of God with speech that was like that. Rather, he was just simply proclaiming the message. The testimony and witness of God is the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.8 highlights this in another parallel passage. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of of God. There you see right in the same verse, testimony of the Lord and gospel, right parallel together. That's, that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about when he came proclaiming the gospel, how did he do it? What was his ministry like? And this is such a cool snapshot into what Paul's ministry was like. And we often will hear these stories and acts and we'll, we'll read the New Testament epistles and we'll kind of construct in our minds what we think this person was like, what we think their preaching was like. But if we're not informed by the word, we end up coming up with a skewed perspective of what it was like. So this is a really cool snapshot into Paul's ministry. Quote from Charles Hodge, As God had determined to save men not by human wisdom but by the gospel, Paul, when he appeared in Corinth, came neither as an orator nor as a philosopher, but simply as a witness. And that is tremendously freeing for all of us. When we think about our role as evangelists, it's not about our ability to be this just rhetorical genius. I think oftentimes, I love, I love those that have this ministry that can kind of just really have those brilliant conversations, and then they post those videos on YouTube, and then we watch them to be equipped and sharpened and encouraged, but then we also see it and be like, I can't be like that. I mean, this guy has mastery in seemingly every subject, and he's able to just refute every error, it seems. I'm, I'm not able to be that rhetorician or that philosopher in every category, I'm just able to be a witness. 
wonderfully, that's what we're seeing as the example of Paul, and that's what we're called to, which is, I don't know about you, but that is comforting. So what was Paul's faithful evangelism plan? Verse 2, this is his plan. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Pretty simple plan, right? It's not a, not a whole lot of components to it, but the first one I thought was really interesting. Be willfully ignorant. Question, how can you decide not to know something? Like, you know something and you just decide, I'm not going to know it. Well, if you know it, you know it, right? So what, what's he talking about here? He's just saying, certainly I, I knew these things. I was acquainted with the Greek philosophers of the day. I'm acquainted with a different rhetorical style. He was trained in the best schools. But that's not what he came proclaiming. I decided that that's not what I'm going to be focusing on. Paul resolved in his mind not to wander into other areas of debate with those in Corinth. He could have spent all his days going down all these different rabbit trails and all these different things that they could have brought up, but he resolved to be functionally ignorant of those things that were not of utmost importance. So he resolved to be willfully ignorant, and then he resolved to proclaim Christ. Evangelism without the Christ, the Messiah, is like baking bread without flour. I had to ask my wife to confirm she makes sourdough bread, and I had to ask to confirm, like, so what else do you add to sourdough to, like, make, make the bread? Just flour and salt. That's it. Okay, that's significant, and, and water. But the thing that provides substance in a loaf of bread is the flour. So a, a loaf of bread without flour is like a little bit of salt and some water maybe, I guess. It's nothing. It's, it's meaningless. And same with evangelism because the evangel, the gospel, is the good news about Jesus Christ. So if you're not going to proclaim Christ, what are you going to proclaim? So Paul resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified is just a summary for the person of Christ and the work of Christ. That's the message that he came with. I'm proclaiming the person of Jesus Christ and what he did. So that third component, proclaim the work of Christ. In general, the world is usually fine if you talk about Jesus. You can wear Jesus bracelets. You can say Jesus loves you. You can do a host of things for Jesus without people getting offended. But the moment that your message is about Christ crucified and all that that implies about humanity's sinfulness, God's wrath, and the gospel's exclusiveness, then there will be pushback, disdain, and accusation of bigotry and hate speech. We can uh, generally, you can talk about church, you can talk about Jesus, as long as it's a, a, a bland, nondescript version of Christianity, people won't be offended. But the moment the focus becomes on Christ crucified and all that that implies, then there's pushback. Hodge again says, Paul's only design in going to Corinth was to preach Christ. And Christ, not as a teacher or as an example or as a perfect man or as a new starting point in the development of the race, all this would be mere philosophy. But Christ as crucified, dying for our sins. Christ as a propitiation was the burden of Paul's preaching. That's his paradigm for preaching. Not go into all the subtleties that could be dragged into, proclaim the person of Christ, proclaim the work of Christ. 
question to briefly discuss at tables. What is your evangelism plan? And then of the three aspects of Paul's evangelism plan, which do you find personally most challenging to implement in your gospel conversations? Just take, take a few minutes to talk about those couple questions at tables, and we'll come back together in just a few minutes. All right, I hear some conversation still happening, but I'd love to bring it back in. What are some things you guys talked about, about uh, your own personal tendencies, challenges? Are there a specific aspect of kind of Paul's example that's personally challenging for you to apply and someone be willing to share? And so often those topics right, become the on-ramps, like something else is talked about and it's like, oh, this is an opportunity to pivot into the gospel, but it's rightly making that pivot and doing that faithfully that becomes really challenging. It's like, oh, it's easier to stay in this realm of uh, a little bit more vague and I, not, it, it's a spiritual conversation, yeah, but was it a gospel conversation? Yeah, definitely. I relate to that big time. What else? Everyone else has this all figured out and doing all three perfectly. Well, Andrew and I are still working on it, so glad the rest of you got it figured out. Anyone else? <laughs> hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Tendency to refute, but not also just proclaim the truth, too. Yeah. All right, I want to just connect to the other side of this, verse 3, which again is encouraging. The simplicity of Paul's paradigm for evangelism is refreshing, but also the power-magnifying weakness. This is the unimpressiveness of the messenger. Look at verse 3 and see if you relate. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, not, again, not that philosophical arguments. This is the unimpressive messenger. How many of you have been fearful in evangelism? If any of you have not been, please talk to me afterwards. I would love to learn how that works and what that's like and learn all I can, but I think we can all relate to being fearful in evangelism. And it's so wonderful that the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, revealed that he himself also felt that fearfulness, that trembling, that weakness. That is a good thing to be reminded of. But that weakness of the messenger, that unimpressiveness of the messenger, us being just vessels, is what paves the way for the high-impact message. And that's where the hope rests. Hudson Taylor said, depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And that is freeing. If coming to Christ was contingent upon the skill of the preacher or the skill of the evangelist, then our faith would not rest on Christ, but on God's 
or on God's power, but on men instead. Thomas Schreiner says, even though human beings are gifted in astonishing ways, including for some rhetorical brilliance, the inventiveness of human beings cannot solve the human problem. What is needed is nothing other than death and resurrection, which means that the only answer for the redemption of human beings is Christ crucified and risen. Not a challenging pep talk that's going to just bring about moral change in your life. It is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and his payment for our sins. So a couple questions related to these verses. Again, describe a time There's a sentence there. Describe a time when weakness, fear, and trembling characterized your efforts to share the gospel. And why is it so encouraging for us that Paul's evangelistic efforts were characterized by weakness? And then, again, what sorts of methods of evangelism and ministry would cause someone to trust in men rather than God? That was the question we opened up with. So take a few more minutes to discuss those questions, and again, we'll come back. Pick someone from your table that would be willing to summarize some of your thoughts from this question. Um, and I will want to hear from each table this time. So go ahead and break for the next couple minutes. All right. Who's the spokesperson for that table back there? What did you guys talk about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not a mark on our character that fearfulness is a part of our efforts here. So, yeah. What about back here? What did you guys talk about? I think that's like just the, the fearfulness in general that can rise up just highlights the importance of a track and using a little little pamphlet that the, the, the ink on that page isn't going to move around on you when everything else is feeling like it's going to move around. You can just leave that with someone and, and pray that the Lord uses that too is really helpful because sometimes I, I'll leave a gospel conversation and be like, wow, I think I left out some really, really significant parts of that. I am... Really glad they have a, a track that they can read that's, that's going to remind them of what we talked about because, yeah, it's so easy to, yeah, be either totally prevented because of that 
hesitancy or um, just to yeah, fumble our faithful communication of the gospel because of that. So preparation helps significantly. Like a moral of this message shouldn't be like, hey, it's totally okay to be just totally nervous every time and there's nothing we can do about it. Like there's lots of things that we can do to help make it more natural for us to share the gospel. Um, but it's just to remind that that reality is, that nervousness is, is present. What about this table? What do you guys talk about? What are some, who is your spokesperson? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's so true that there's, yeah, fear of talking to strangers is a thing, but fear of offending those closest to us, I think, is often a much stronger fear. So either one is ultimately the fear of man, but there's still that fear that has to be overcome. What about here? What did you guys talk about? Who is the spokesperson? Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, we talked about awesome. What about that second question? Anyone want to throw some thoughts in there about methods of evangelism and ministry that might cause someone to trust in men rather than God? Did you guys, anyone talk about some specific examples that came to mind? Yeah, that's a really good point that yeah, if our, if our gospel, as powerful as a personal testimony is, if our gospel witness doesn't go beyond just, here's my story, if we don't actually connect it back to, and here's what Scripture says about my story, and here's what Scripture says about your story, then it would just be, yeah, trusting in, yeah, man's story. Good. What else? What could be some other things that could subtly shift someone's trust away from God and then onto men? Altar calls. How would alt, how, flush that out? I want. Yeah. Yeah, it can be really easy to blur, blur in our minds, like, what, what was it exactly that saved me? Was it the fact that I walked that aisle? Because 
And, then, and I think many times the moment of people's salvation is simultaneous to their walking, walking an aisle, but I think there's also many times in which that aisle was walked, but life transformation didn't happen. There was something else was pressuring them. It was that fourth verse from that song played seven times, and oh boy, someone has to walk forward. It must be me. Is that, is that the spirit moving in my heart, or is it just pressure? So, yeah, big time. I think that's a great example. So this first section, these first four verses, are, are talking about the dissonance with the gospel's dissonance with worldly wisdom, but then Paul shifts in verse six to talking about the gospel's harmony with spiritual wisdom. The gospel's harmony with spiritual wisdom. So he's quick to say, this isn't like an anti-reason, anti-wisdom truth and message that I'm bringing. He says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, but this is wisdom that is from the spirit. So let's read verses six through thirteen. Of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. A few characteristics and attributes of wisdom from the Spirit, looking at verses 6 through 8, kind of a list of things that I saw here. It's, first, it's communicated among the mature. Wisdom from the Spirit is communicated among the mature. It's not of this age or of this age's rulers. Rather, it's an otherworldly wisdom. It's God's wisdom. It's not human wisdom. It's wisdom that's revealed in a mystery. That is, it's delivered such that it was not previously known. This is wisdom that was a mystery. And then verse 7, at the middle of verse 7, it's a hidden wisdom. It's wisdom that is not self-evident. Wisdom that is not self-evident. The wisdom that is spiritual wisdom is wisdom that had to be revealed. And we're going to talk a little bit about that at the second half of this section. It wasn't something that someone was just going to kind of reason their way to. The, the Greek philosophers of the day weren't going to come up with this logical proof and then just click, aha, I understand the gospel. No, this was something that was revealed by God and had to be revealed by God. It's the wisdom that was predestined, verse 7. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This was decreed, this was predestined, this was set aside ahead of time that God would reveal this, and it would, he would reveal this plan that would be for the glorification, for the, for the great good of those that would believe this good news. And it was a wisdom, the wisdom from the Spirit is a wisdom not understood by the rulers of this world, 
hence the crucifixion. Paul says, if the, if the rulers of this world got it, if they understood the wisdom that I was talking about, Jesus Christ would never have been crucified in the first place because they would have embraced this wisdom from God. A quote that I forgot to mention there regarding hidden wisdom, again from John Flavel, none of God's works are unreasonable, but many of them are above reason. I think that's just a wonderful thought to think through that none of God's works are unreasonable or anti-reason, but so much of it goes significantly beyond what our finite minds understand, goes above our human reason. And that's really where, when we hit that point in Scripture, when we're reading something, we'll be like, wow, a, a reality about who God is and what his plan is is being revealed that goes beyond my comprehension. You have now bumped up against the wall of worship. Anything beyond that, you are worshiping God. It's not it's not going to be something that you can just totally wrap your head around. It's going to be, I worship a God that's higher, greater, stronger than me. So verse 9 turns into God's gracious revelation, talking about how this message was revealed, talking more about this message. So it was a spiritual message. It's something that wasn't perceived by eyes or by um, hearing. God's preparations, which were plans most clearly seen in the gospel, God's preparations for those who love him are unable to be discerned by natural perception, by sight, by hearing. It's not just something that you kind of stumble across by your, your natural faculties of perception. Rather, it requires spiritual insight. The passage that Paul references is Isaiah 64, 4, reading, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. And that love for God is the immediate um, result of a heart that is waiting for God. So that's why he can, he can translate that passage from the Hebrew into the New Testament Greek, what God has prepared for those who love him. That idea of waiting for God, loving God, are two sides of the same coin. So it's a spiritual message, verse 9, the message that's not just going to be naturally perceived, and it's revealed by the Spirit. Revealed by the Spirit, verse 10. Things otherwise unknowable are known by the Spirit of God and consequently imparted to believers through his historic ministry of Scripture's inspiration and, I should say his, and his present indwelling ministry of illumination. Things otherwise unknowable are known by the Spirit of God through both inspiration, inspiring the scriptures, and through illumination, that work that he does in the heart and mind of each believer. And then is the Spirit's prerogative alone to do this? Think about it. Verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? The answer is no one. The only way that someone else can know your thoughts is if you communicate them. But otherwise, it's, it's you internally knowing your thoughts. Only God's Spirit can reveal the heart of God since no one else can claim to see into God's mind. And this is remarkable in verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So the Spirit is God's gift for understanding God's gifts. God's gift for understanding God's gifts. The Spirit is received, and it's received so that we can understand what we've been given. 
which is really remarkable. So this source of the Spirit is God. The Spirit is given freely to us by God. And the purpose of the Spirit, talked about in this verse, is understanding. The purpose of the Spirit, understanding. Why was the Spirit given? We receive not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand. Many would reduce the Spirit's impact to the emotions, but the Spirit first illuminates our minds to understand Scripture. The Holy Spirit is given to believers in part for the purpose of enabling the comprehension of spiritual realities related to the plan of God and salvation. The Spirit allows us to comprehend what we've been given by God. That is a remarkable and wonderfully comforting reality that we have a gift from God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling us so that we may understand the gifts of God. And Verse 13 continues about talking about how we're to be relaying spiritual wisdom. So if we've received this spiritual wisdom, how are we to relay it? Verse 13, and we impart, that is we, we communicate. So something's been received and we relay, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul's message as a model for any faithful minister, any faithful evangelist, he models taking his content from what the Spirit has communicated. Paul's target audience was Spirit-illuminated believers. Paul's content was spiritual realities. And just think about this. If only God's Spirit knows the mind of God, which only God's Spirit knows the mind of God. So if that's true, and the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of Scripture, then the sure way to communicate matters of eternal significance and absolute truthfulness is to simply speak, preach, proclaim, discuss the word of God. If you want to know that you're communicating things of absolute truthfulness, communicate God's word because that's how God's mind is revealed. This is why one of the core values of CBC and Crossroads is expository preaching. In our core values we articulate, we emphasize the systematic study the systematic preaching, the systematic teaching of Scripture in every service, in every decision and ministry of the church. There are only two types of words that someone can bring to the table. Either we're going to bring human wisdom, which is sourced from the mind of fallen man, or we're going to bring God's wisdom to the table. Sourced from the mind of God, known by the Spirit of God, and revealed in the Spirit-inspired Word. These couple questions we'll loop back to in a minute, but how would you respond to someone who claims that the Bible is anti-rational? How would you explain the difference between spiritual wisdom and God's wisdom? And that is spiritual wisdom and God's wisdom versus worldly wisdom. And then the second half of that section that we just looked at, how does our dependence on the Holy Spirit for understanding the things of God impact the way we read our Bibles? And how does it drive us to pray for ourselves and to pray for others? How does it influence our prayers in those areas. So we'll loop back to those questions. But I now want to talk about the natural inability of fallen human reasoning. Verse 14. We talked a little bit about this um, two months ago or so when we were doing the, the message on discipleship and what it means to be a learner of Christ. But we'll loop back and hit it again because we're in this passage. Verse 14, I'll read 14 through 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, 
and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things and is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That is a tremendously remarkable passage. I've commented on the illustration of a radio receiver and, and like the inability to hear radio waves. Like you're, you're sitting here, there's, there's radio waves around, but you can't hear them because you don't have the faculties to pick up those frequencies. That's a similar, similar concept here. The natural person doesn't accept the things of God. He doesn't receive the things of God because he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There's not an appropriate receptor to be able to even comprehend these realities that are communicated on a different wavelength because this is coming from the mind of God. We, we don't have the ability naturally to just pick up those frequencies, you could say. And this, this is coming from the fact that we're fallen, in our, in our fallen condition, the natural person, as an immediate outflow of humankind's depravity in our natural state, we're left in a condition of spiritual inability. We're left in a condition of spiritual inability. So we talk about depravity a lot. What, it, what has sin impacted? It's impacted every aspect of who we are. But not only is there that total depravity, but then that depravity is influencing our ability. And that's what's being talked about in this verse. This unable to understand because they are spiritually discerned. We're left in a position naturally, of inability. By default, all humans after the fall, by default, mankind does not have the faculties necessary to perceive and recognize spiritual truth. Certainly, mankind is spiritual, but naturally believes all sorts of wrong things, having suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1 highlights that mankind is naturally spiritual. He, he worships. He worships things. But what happens apart from the Spirit of God is that we end up deifying things that aren't God, and we end up reducing and really turning into a human God. And we, we flip-flop things entirely. So yeah, a natural man is spiritual in the sense that he, he is going to be worshiping something. He, he knows that there's realities other than the physical. But he gets all sorts of things wrong. So our condition before conver conversion, this verse talks about it, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2.14, but also Ephesians 4, Ephesians 2. Our condition before conversion is that of deadness. Ephesians 2.1. You can turn with me to Ephesians. I, I think I included that passage there too, but Ephesians 2.1. Ephesians, all of it is so wonderful. But Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Flipping over to Ephesians 4, 17. Observe mankind's natural abilities. Think about, all right, what, what natural abilities does the, does the non-believer have? Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. A remarkable list 
a, a humbling and a sobering list describing futility of mind, darkened understanding, detachment from the life of God, internal ignorance, hardness of heart, callousness towards sin. This is not an encouraging list. This is not a list that just makes us feel great about um, our own natural mental condition. Then a question to think about from this is, how does the spiritual deadness of our condition before coming to faith in Christ highlight our dependence upon the Lord for salvation? Because that's exactly what it does. But to flesh that out, how does that specifically highlight that? We'll continue on though. Verse 15 and 16 talk about the restored ability of the spirit-renewed reasoning. So verse 14 talks about natural inability of fallen human reasoning. 15 and 16 talks about the restored ability of spirit-renewed reasoning. This is the believer's ability to discern. Where the world accuses the believer of being foolish, unable to discern, and you've heard this if you've had a gospel conversation, if you've turned on any TV station anywhere, or watched any sorts of popular movies. Christians are belittled as not able to reason. They're foolish. Where the world accuses a believer of being foolish and unable to discern, the reality is that the only one who is spiritually alive, they are the only one who's spiritually alive that can accurately discern. Furthermore, the judgment of the unbeliever holds no weight against the believer. That's what 15 is talking about. The spiritual person judges. That is, the spiritual person can discern, can receive all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. That is, how can someone who is dead in their trespasses and sins pass judgment on an understanding that the Spirit of God has revealed to someone? You can't. There's, there's different categories, really. So the believer's ability to discern, this was talked about in 15, but 16 is a glorious verse that we could spend a whole morning unpacking, but it's the source of the believer's ability to discern. The source of the believer's ability to discern. And this is the the last one that we'll look at for this morning. I want to highlight just something amazing from this verse. Paul is referencing Isaiah when he quotes this passage of the Old Testament. And he quotes it here as, for who has understood the mind of the Lord? The mind of the Lord. And here the, the word Lord is kurios. That's the same word that means the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Lord as in master, ruler, authority. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? But in Isaiah 40, verse 13, that he quotes, he says, this is Isaiah writing, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? So where Paul says, who has understood the mind of the Lord, kurios, like the the Lord, um, master, ruler, authority. Isaiah is saying, who has understood the spirit of capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh? So here we have Old Testament reference to the spirit of God. New Testament, Paul is, he's expositing this text, explaining it, and he's, he's free to, under inspiration, translate the reality of what's going on here. Understood the mind of the Lord so having, there the parallel is, having the Spirit of the Lord is having the mind of the Lord. And then he says, but we have the mind of Christ. So he just drew a connection between three things. And I'd never seen this passage as amazingly Trinitarian as it is. But right in this verse and the verse he's referencing, all three members of the Holy Spirit and, or all three members of the, of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and our vested interest in them as having received the Holy Spirit. 
having received the Holy Spirit, is receiving the mind of Christ, being welcomed into that fellowship. Because who has understood the mind of the Lord but the Lord? Who has understood the mind of the Lord but the Spirit of the Lord? No one. But we have the mind of Christ. We've received the Spirit, which means we are able to know God's plans in, in this regard. So this is, this is what, um, I think it's John, I'm sorry, I, I lost my, my reference here. John 15, 15. I don't have it in your notes. You can write it in the margins uh, if you'd like. John 15, 15. Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. The believers welcomed in to an understanding of what God's plan is, God's plan of redemption, God's plan into the future regarding his reign, his, his coming again, a wonderful, comforting reality. These verses are a remarkable snapshot into the Trinity and the personal benefit that believers experience because of our fellowship with God. Our ability to perceive spiritual wisdom is directly contingent upon our possessing the Spirit of God who is the mind of Christ. And the fact that we have the mind of Christ should absolutely prompt thankfulness and prompt great gratitude. We'll loop back and talk about a couple of those questions for like five minutes or so at tables. I'll close with some prayer first, but I just wanted to highlight a couple things to look at for next week when we get together and talk about 1 Corinthians 3. If you get the chance to read that passage, it's 23 verses, but I want to specifically direct your attention this week as you're thinking through it and preparing for next week. How do the images of the church as God's field, God's building, and God's temple help to display the unity of the church and the folly of division. So just think through that. Maybe jot a couple thoughts down and we'll, we'll start our time next week, Lord willing, by talking about that a little bit before we dig into the passage. I'm going to pray for us and then you can go back and hit those couple questions that we um, didn't hit midway through. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you for your spirit. Apart from both what you've written and inspired and apart from the Spirit's illuminating work in our hearts, we would be at a loss and we would be utterly unable to perceive things of eternal value. We would be unable to perceive truth. We would be unable to perceive and understand and respond to the gospel. So we thank you so much for the Spirit's work in our hearts um, when we turned and put our faith and trust in you, but also for the Spirit's work in our hearts day by day and the ability that gives us to receive your word. I just ask that you would help each of us to not take for granted the wonderful gift that we have in Christ and the wonderful gift that he's given us in the indwelling Holy Spirit. I ask that you'd bless the little bit of remaining discussion this morning, and again, we thank you so much for this time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.